welcome to tonight's episode of The Epic Pencil, a weekly evening of original fiction, conversations with writers, and more. I'm your host, Chris Watson. Thanks for joining me. One of my favorite plays is Inherit the Wind by Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee. In it, Henry Drummond, lawyer for the defense, tells the story of Golden Dancer. It was a rocking horse that Drummond had seen in a shop window when he was seven years old. She had a bright red mane, blue eyes, and was gold all over with purple spots. He desired Golden Dancer more than anything because of its beauty, believing if he owned it, he would have everything he ever wanted. When his parents saved and bought it for his birthday, he jumped into the saddle, started to rock, and it broke. Golden Dancer was all shine and no substance, rotten wood and put together with spit and sealing wax. Certainly it's a cautionary tale about superficial perfection and beauty, as well as an admonishment to stand up to and reveal a lie. But I've also come to view that brief story as something more, as the start of Henry Drummond's coming of age. Of course, the play never actually goes there, that's not the point. However, there are moments in all of our lives when something happens. Something's revealed when the perspective we have as children changes and becomes more mature, a bit more worldly, a bit more realistic. We realize, for example, that our parents are fallible and can be hurt, that perhaps not everyone can be trusted, that our hearts can be broken, that the beautiful rocking horse into which we poured our hopes and dreams is an illusion. But at the same time, we realize that the world is more nuanced, more fascinating, more brilliantly complex, and that we've gained an entirely new perspective that opens a universe of previously hidden possibilities. In tonight's episode, Phantasmagoria comes to a close. Hattie has another discovery or two ahead of him, plus a choice to make between his youthful illusions and taking a step forward into a more realistic but more exciting world. So let's put pencil to paper and read on. Hi, Hattie. Huh? I looked about with a start. Shep and I were seated on the bleachers under the big top. Moira slipped into the empty spot on the bench next to me, and for a moment I was distinctly aware of her proximity. Oh, hi, Moira, I replied. At last he comes out of his trance, Shep said, annoyed that I had ignored whatever he had been saying because of my daydream. I'm sorry, I replied. What did you say, Shep? I said I didn't know how much of my fortune I should believe. I mean, think about what she said. Marry a girl with a name starting with K and have three kids. That's crazy, hissed Shep, eliciting annoyed looks from our neighbors. I don't want to get married. Lady Zabrina is crazy. Who wants kids anyway? The rest, about going across the ocean and always coming back home, that sounded great, though. How much do you believe, Hattie? I shrugged. I don't know. I said, though in truth, I knew what I wanted to believe. Journeys, adventure, a girl with a name beginning with M or maybe L. It may have been almost too much for her to see, but I desperately wish she had continued. So you went to that Lady Zabrina? Moira asked. We nodded in reply. I thought about it, she said, but Zazie Beecham and I went to the Hall of Mirrors instead. She had to go sit with her parents for this, though. I saw your parents, Hattie. Your mom looked pretty excited. I think she won something in one of the sideshow games. Want to cash you? 
and she held out a small paper cone filled with roasted honey nuts. The crowd under the tent roared as Professor Sinkbottom stepped through a cloud of smoke, flourishing his hat and gesturing to the departing elephant act. For some time now, the rake-thin man in the black cape and sparkling red shirt had held the audience spellbound between acts. He raised his hands for silence. Dear guests, it is now my great pleasure to introduce a truly phantasmagorical event, a performance that so amazed the pharaoh of greater Egypt that he offered me three wives from his harem for this performer and her compatriots. It was tempting, he said with a sly, lecherous wink directed at some of the older men on one side of the tent, but this brilliant piece of showmanship is worth a far greater price than any offered by man. Ladies and gentlemen, his voice rising several notches, for your entertainment pleasure, I present to you Princess Olga, equestrian superb, and her golden steeds. The crowd roared again as the tent flaps parted and a vision in white, standing atop a golden horse and flanked by two others, galloped into the ring. I was entranced as she rode by, hopping from one horse to another. It didn't matter to me that the horses were a bit on the skinny side, and that their coats were the color of autumn hay instead of gold, or even that the saddles in Princess Olga's costume were somewhat worn. It was spectacular, and I could see why the pharaoh of Greater Egypt had been willing to part with three wives from his harem. I suppose the pharaoh probably had thirty or forty wives, I mean, they always did in the Arabian Nights, so I expected that losing three wouldn't be mm, such a hardship, but still, it was probably a pretty generous offer. Hattie! I jumped when Shep punched me in the arm. I had been daydreaming again and missed something that had probably seemed important to him. I just wanted to finish watching Princess Olga and wait for the final act of the night, but I turned to him anyway. What is it? I hissed. He pointed at Princess Olga. Is that Lady Zabrina? Where? There, on the horse, the one Professor Sinkbottom called Princess Olga, he said, pointing again toward the cantering horses. I stared. Nah, it's not the same person. It couldn't be. Besides, she doesn't look anything like Lady Zabrina. Her hair isn't the same color. Shep shook his head. I think it is. She was probably wearing a wig or something. You mean you don't see it? No, I snapped. Of course they aren't the same person. Why on earth would she be introduced as two different people? You're crazy, I said and settled down into silence, the mood now ruined. The tent flaps opened and Princess Olga, for I knew she couldn't possibly be the same person as Lady Zabrina, rode out into the night. Right on cue, Professor Sinkbottom reappeared. Now, dear friends, he intoned in a subdued voice that brought a sudden hush across the audience, we come to the final climactic, stunning performance of this stupendous evening. On behalf of the artists, prodigies, and geniuses with whom I travel, I give you my heartfelt thanks. And he bent almost double in a sweeping bow. The crowd erupted into an avalanche of cheers and applause. Sinkbottom gestured for silence, and Moira slid even closer to me, her arms snaking through mine in the darkness. Tonight, in a few short moments, you will be treated to the finest aerial performance this side of the Sun God's chariot. 
I present to you a performer who needs no words of flowery praise or admiration as an introduction. Indeed, such words would pale in comparison to... The drums rolled. Lorelei Luna, the flying moon goddess! A gasp went up from the crowd as Sinkbottom gestured overhead. Even as I looked upwards, I could see a falling flash of silver and gold, tumbling and twisting like a stricken bird. A collective scream leaped into the throats of four hundred onlookers, only to be choked back at the last moment as the plummeting figure gracefully snapped into a broad arc, rising over our heads on the end of a trapeze. The figure landed ever so gently on a platform some forty feet above our heads. At that moment... Even at that distance, I found myself falling into deep wells of blue, eyes that beckoned me on and made my heart flutter. I watched the performance without speaking, without moving, so enraptured by Lorelei Luna that I was incapable of the smallest action. Had the bleachers collapsed and the ground given way at that moment, in my bliss I think I could have defied gravity if it meant that I could watch her for only a moment more. I recall Professor Sinkbottom ending the circus, but it wasn't until I was outside, being pulled away from the tent, away from her, that I clawed my way back to reality. Hey, uh, you two go on without me. I gotta go do something. Hattie, what are you talking about? We gotta be home in half an hour and it'll take forever in this crowd, Shep protested. I'll get home all right. You go on. I'm serious. I'll see you tomorrow. He looked at me, confusion on his face. Are you sure? Yeah, go home, Shep, I said, and turned away, leaving Shep and Royer behind me as I forced my way upstream through the crowd toward the big top. She was sitting next to a tent, removing the ribbons from her hair. A roustabout had directed me to her, and I stood just outside the halo of lamplight that illuminated her creamy skin. Close up, she was no less beautiful, and apparently not much older than me. Miss Luna? I stammered, forcing myself to say something. She looked at me, squinting to see into the darkness. Yes, come into the light. I moved forward nervously, a Herculean effort to step within the arena of light to see and be seen. Hello, she said, and the words flickered about my ears like musical notes. Hi, I said, thrusting out my hand only to reconsider and withdraw it, then thrust it back out, looking at it like it was a strange fish that had unexpectedly jumped into my boat. She giggled softly and shook my hand. Her palm was callous, no doubt from the trapeze, and it turned my legs into pudding. "'You have the advantage of me, sir,' she said in a light southern accent. "'Huh?' I gaped, only to realize what she meant. "'Oh, of course, I'm Hattie, uh, Hatfield McLernan. I, um, saw your performance and, and... "'Are you nervous?' My eyes felt as though they were bugging out of my head, and my tongue felt like it was wrapped in muslin. I was making a complete hash of things. The only thing that could make this worse would be if one of my eyes suddenly shifted the other side of my head like a flounder. No! I exclaimed, denying by volume and a crack in my voice what I sought to claim in words. Well, yes, I admitted sheepishly. She smiled and patted the top of a nearby barrel. Have a seat, I've got a few minutes. Nodding in thanks, I sat. You see, Miss Luna, 
She held up a hand. Oh, please, that's my stage name. And despite the rigors of performing, I'm never on stage when the show is over. I'm Millicent Josephine Bonaparte. I'm French, you see. I shall call you Hattie, and you shall call me Millie, like all my friends do. There went my heart again. I'd be having consumptions and one of Mother's medicinal concoctions before daybreak if I kept this up. Thank you, I said. Well, she said with a smile as she rose to hang her golden cape over a nearby post, what can I do for you? Oh, I exclaimed, well, you see, Miss, uh, Millie, you were just amazing and I just, oh, wanted to tell you that. Nice going, chowderhead, I groaned to myself as a mental hand slapped my forehead. She smiled even more broadly than before and lightly touched my knee as she leaned down. Hattie, that is the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me, truly, and gave me a quick kiss on the cheek. A chowderhead no more, I grinned like an idiot and straightened slightly in my seat. I've never been to a circus before, I explained. This has been the most exciting evening of my life, and you're the most incredible person I've ever seen. And Lady Zabrina said I would have great adventures and meet a girl with the initial M or L, and here you are with names beginning with both, and here I am at a circus which I never could have imagined in my whole life, and... The unchecked flow of speech abruptly stopped as she placed two fingers over my lips. What can you do, Hattie? Do? I asked. Well, all sorts of things. I can hunt and fish and swim and sail and dance a bit. My mother taught me how. I really can't sing, but I learn all sorts of things quick. Have you ever thought about joining the circus? She asked. What? I asked. She turned her back and looking over her shoulder asked, Can you untie me, please? Not believing either of the things I had just heard, I rose and slowly began untying the laces on the back of her silver outfit. What did you mean when you asked if I'd ever thought of joining a circus? I asked, voice quavering as the fabric shifted slightly, revealing her shoulder blades. Well, it seems simple enough to me, she said with a laugh, and slipped off the outfit, revealing the back of her body bare but for a pair of very short, tight bloomers. Heat rose in my face, though this time around I managed to look the other way. I heard the rustle of fabric as she said, Have you ever thought about what it means to be in the circus? The crowds, the applause, the adoration of people, the talent, the music? I turned back to look at her. A long, straight, plain dress was just dropping over her almost, but not quite, bare body. No, I replied. Well, what did you think of the circus tonight, Hattie? She asked quietly. It was like another world. I've never seen anything like it. Yes, she said. It's almost hypnotic, isn't it? I felt the same way you do right now, Hattie. And I left my home to become Lorelai Luna, the flying moon goddess. What could you become? I stared at her in surprise. Hattie, she whispered, we always need new performers to keep the illusion alive. If you want to come with us, meet me here at 5.30 this morning. The train will be pulling out then, leaving for Portland. I'll be waiting for you should you want to join us. 
and she turned and vanished into the darkness behind the tents, leaving a faint trail of lilting laughter. Bacon Square was quiet as I left the circus behind me, hands in my pockets and head a-whirl. The crowds had dissipated, with only a few stragglers along the docks and couples walking arm-in-arm back toward their home. Papers and handbills fluttered about in the light breeze. "'Hey,' said a soft voice from the darkness. I turned and saw Moira perched in shadows on a bench. "'Hey, back,' I replied. She slipped off the bench, and as she had in the tent, let her arm snake through mine as we walked. "'Fun night, huh?' "'Yeah,' I said. "'Pretty fun. "'Walk me home?' I smiled. "'Sure.' We walked in silence beneath the brilliant summer main sky, the stars blazing in the heavens. At some point, my hand came out of my pocket and found Moira's, our fingers intertwining. So, a girl named L or M, huh? She asked as we passed Mr. Timothy's pharmacy. I looked at her in surprise. She shrugged. Shep told me. I think he was more upset about the idea of having three kids. Some of the other stuff sounded interesting, though. The idea of traveling, adventures, going on journeys. We turned up Samoset Hill toward the Duncan house. It would be sad to leave, though, wouldn't it? Moira asked. I guess, but she did say we'd always come home. I shook my head. Forget it. How could she know the future? It's all guff. It sounds very exciting for you. She paused as we walked and then asked, If it could be true, would you want it to be? I thought about it and felt her hand squeeze mine. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of confused. We came to a stop outside her grand Victorian home. Lamps gleamed through the windows, and we could hear Moira's mother say something indistinct, followed by a bark of laughter from the mayor. Good night, Moira, I said. Good night, Hattie, she replied and headed up the broad wooden steps to the wraparound porch. Then she stopped midway up and glanced back at me. "'Will we see you tomorrow?' she asked quietly. "'Sure,' I said after a moment, and turned for home. "'It was crazy,' I thought to myself as I lay in my bed later that night. "'How can I think of leaving my friends, my family, Shelton's Cove, and go off with a circus? "'That was crazy. Why did I even think it?' But again and again, I found myself thinking of Millicent's words about color and life. Don't be stupid, I said to myself. As I lay there in the darkness, a memory of the calliope and the peanuts came floating back, and I smiled at the thought. The noises of the sideshows and the laughter echoed through the room, and candy-filled smiles surrounded me only to be banished by the image of my mother and father. How can I even think of leaving them? I rolled onto my side, seeing Alibaba and Scheherazade dancing to the tune of the calliope in my head, before visions of the twins, mouths full of sweet potatoes, chased them away. Could I really consider leaving them? What about Tess? What would she do or think? And Moira? I quickly shook off the memory of Moira on Kid's Mound, though it was replaced by the warm, unexpected feeling of her fingers interlaced with mine. Don't be stupid, I said again, tossing atop my bed. I thought about my family, holidays, presents, Shep, 
and Lorelei Luna, the flying moon goddess, also known as Millicent Josephine Bonaparte, and a most disconcerting Moira Louisa Duncan. I lay there in the darkness, unable to sleep. Breakfast was the usual rowdy affair, and even more so with Tess's return. The twins chattered on and on about the circus and the rubber man and the elephant act, while I sat and stabbed half-heartedly at my eggs. My eyes drooped with exhaustion, and I was thankful there was no school for two months. Father stood by the stove, flipping several pieces of bacon, while my mother sat looking out the window, drinking her tea and smiling in a strange way at a porcelain doll she had won the night before. I'm glad you all had a good time at the circus last night, remarked Father. I thought it was a wonderful way to start the summer. The twins cheered and bolted from the table, seeking escape into the world outside. You've been awfully quiet, Hattie. Are you all right? asked my mother. Yes, I said quietly. I'm just tired. All that excitement last night, no doubt, chuckled my father. Glad you're still with us. And he and my mom laughed at his joke. I laughed politely and excused myself from the table, unable to choke down another bite. I rushed outside and headed down the bluff toward the waters of the cove. My parents would never know that I had been at Bacon Square before dawn. I'd stood there among the crumpled tickets and the trappings of the fantasies of the night before, alone, waving goodbye, with no trapeze, no net, no elephants, just Lorelei, Millicent, raising her hand in farewell. The train drew away, slowly passing out of view down the tracks and taking the traveling menagerie and performing phantasmagoria toward another night of illusion elsewhere as I turned toward home. Moira found me, staring out across the cove, my legs dangling over the end of the pier. I didn't even realize she was there until she sat down beside me. We sat together, saying nothing for what might have been an eternity or merely a minute. Hey, she finally said. Hey, back, I replied, and reached for her hand. I smiled a bit, as a gentle breeze wafted across Shelton's Cove, carrying away an illusion and bringing in its place memories of cashews and incense from distant lands. This concludes Phantasmagoria. I hope you enjoyed it and would love your feedback. Contact me at chris at pretendingtowrite.com. The Epic Pencil will return next week with new stories and more. Thanks very much for joining me and taking some time to listen. And until we read again next week, please enjoy a great book or two, and remember to support your local independent booksellers. The content of The Epic Pencil and Phantasmagoria are copyright 2020 by Christopher Watson.